Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Homegrown Power. My name's Pasita Rudder. And I'm Jasmine Lever. And this podcast is all about cultural strategy. And just as a refresher, we define cultural strategy as integration of a few different things. Art, culture, narrative, and organizing. When we talk about cultural strategy, we're talking about long-term, large-scale cultural shifts that really impact our society. So this episode, we're in the Central Valley, uh, specifically in Merced, talking to Alicia Olivares and Christy Gallardo of 99 Roots about their youth organizing. So it's not my first time in Merced, but I, I took the 99 as well as Pasita, and we met in Merced. Pasita, what, what did you think about Merced? I mean, the first thing I noticed when I pulled up to the 99 Roots office was how colorful the office was. Um, it's located on Main Street, surrounded by a tire shop to the left of it. And then across the street is a district attorney's office. But as you pull up, it's like, there's this huge red door. And it's just really bright and colorful. Yeah, it's a storefront building and they have these huge windows. And the first thing I noticed were all the political posters in the windows, right? You're not really used to walking down Main Street and seeing an Asada Shakur poster in the window, <laughs> especially in the Central Valley. Yeah, and the space really opened up the conversations that we had within this episode. All right, so uh, why don't we hear from Alicia and Chrissy on what's going on in Merced? sitting here I'm seeing one of my like, favorite signs that I saw at last week's um, Ice Up California action it says I hate this heat but I hate ice more um, and it's just like so central valley um, <laughs> y'all, y'all don't understand how hot it is <laughs> um, but what, like that to me just is like also shows how like y'all are integrating cultural strategy um, into like your youth organizing work. But can you speak a little bit more about that? How you're using that strategy with youth? Yeah, and I think um, even down to the colors we chose and the art that we put up, it's really important. You'll notice it is super bright when you walk in and people can see it from outside. And it's really important, I think, that we take up space, right? Um, and think about the ways in which we're signifying to the young people and to um, you know folks walking by what we're about, right? Even the colors were chosen because they vibrate together, remember? <laughs> and like yellow is happy, right? So thinking about how we're curating a space that reflects our values and the work that we, we want to do. Alicia, I heard you were literally on your hands and knees putting down flooring. Yes. <laughs> how was that? It was good. I'm actually a master at laying linoleum flooring now. This is like my second time doing it. Um, But yeah, I think for me, again, I think it's really important that we just have spaces that um, really reflect um, the kind of vibes that we want to put out there and and are not only safe um, and places where young people can learn, but also like people want to be a part of, right? I mean, when I think about culture, I think about art, I think about music, I think about language, I think about food, right? All of the different aspects that are part of our traditions and our communities and literally when woven together, like the fabric of our communities. 
And I think it's important in organizing and um, electoral organizing work that we recognize that the young people that we work with, the young people that we're bringing in, are full of people that are bringing their cultures and their communities to the work. And how are we weaving all that together, right? So like, we incorporate a lot of art into my music, um, art making. Um, I think even I want to get to the place where we could do like food exchanges with different cultures um, as learning opportunities. And I think that's how you get folks you know, if they don't identify with a particular culture, especially where we're from, or they are not proud to, of their culture, it's hard to get them to come out and be a, a voting block, right? Um, and so I think that first piece is really getting folks to be proud of their cultures and share their cultures uh, across. Yeah, I think it's like uh, our cultural strategy to me, what it means is just getting our crew, our people, our youth that might not understand how where they come from matters um, in creating a safe space where we learn about our true history, where we incorporate our skills, where we incorporate like color, where we validate um, our experiences at home, um, and where we can also just say like, hey, this is how we're going to teach and educate the masses in this community um, because not only is it for us to learn and, and gain these skills and build a beautiful, colorful office and safe space for all of us, it's also for us to get a message out. So how do we build art and create our own art with a dope message uh, that can resonate with other young people that, like you and like myself growing up here, once didn't understand the importance of doing community work. I once didn't understand uh, the importance of feeling like it was okay to be brown and proud in the Central Valley. Growing up in the Central Valley, I grew up in Fresno, like we internalize everything about that's said about like just hearing the negatives about the Central Valley. And it's just kind of like this really vague, like it sucks here. Like I remember hearing my friends being like, I can't wait to get out of here. And most of them did. They left. So I know Alicia, you grew up in Sanger and Chrissy, you grew up in Merced. And I know you've talked a little bit about it, but like what was it like for you growing up in the Central Valley? Um, I think for me you know, I think similar to what was all of what you expressed. I grew up to, you know, with mostly a single dad. Um, my mom and mo a lot of my family has struggled with substance abuse. Um, and particularly, and I want to name it because I think it's something that we don't talk about enough, like meth. Meth is a huge problem in these rural communities. And it's, it's, it like, consumed my family's lives, right? Um, a lot of mental health issues, of course, were rural, so there's no mental health services. Um, and then my dad, you know, came as um, an undocumented immigrant and worked multiple jobs. So, like, for me, and I grew up in a neighborhood at the time that was super impacted by gang violence, and I think I just wanted out. <laughs> I just wanted to go as far away as possible, um, you know, but the further and further I went away, you know, in, into these institutions, I realized especially for social justice work, um, that it wasn't for me. Like, I it didn't get energy. I think there's like two, some folks who are like, yeah, we could change it from within the system. And for me, thinking about the community that I'm from, like the Central Valley, one of the most impacted communities, um, that 
you know, thinking about that if I want to do organizing work, literally there's just very few regions where it needs to be done as badly as it needs to be done here. And so I, I knew it was time to come back. Um, and, I, and I had done my work to, to figure out how to network, get resources, and bring that back home. Yeah, um, I actually moved to the Central Valley when I was really, really young. Grew up in South Central LA. Um, my parents were you know, immigrants from Oaxaca, Guanajuato, worked in the factories, clothing companies in downtown. Um, my dad convinced my mom to move to Atwater because he straight up told her like el aire está fresco allá <laughs> the air is so fresh in the Central Valley it's not polluted like LA um, and we're gonna have jobs um, so we, we relocated to Atwater and I I just remember being shocked going to Mitchell Senior um, because I had never been around so many white teachers and white students. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, um, teachers of color. And moving here to Atwater was completely different. Um, gangs, drugs um, are present in every community, in every low-income hood. Um, that's going to be a reality. So uh, as the youngest of three, you know, I saw my older siblings um, get involved in gangs here in, in the Central Valley. Um, my parents struggled to find work. They, they just worked in the fields. They were undocu both undocumented at the time, so uh, that's the only place where they could work. Um, and just growing up, there was never anything to do. I grew up with in a group of friends where all of us said, like, we had this false idea that we would magically leave the Central Valley. Like, oh, I'm, once I'm 18, I'm leaving. Um, and no one had a real plan. I was the only one out of my, my, my group of six friends that actually left to go to college. All of them still live here. All of them still work at our local, you know, Walmart, Lowe's, fast food joints. They're all still working here and their lives have always been here. Um, I too, you know, have a brother that um, is a meth user to this day. For over 15 years now, my brother has been a meth user and is struggling with like finding resources um, to, to cope with his addiction, to cope with, with what he, support he needs. Um, yeah, I, I, I left um, this community because I felt like um, my family didn't have any opportunities. I felt like the only way that I could change my life was by not being in the 209. Um, and it, it sucked, you know, because I I also lost a sister to, to violence. She was murdered when I was 16. And I remember at that time thinking that it was normal that my brother was in the county jail when it happened and that uh, it was normal for me to have to go tell him like, hey, our sister was murdered while he was locked up. Um, but I thought it was the norm because I wasn't the only one whose family was struggling with those things. Yeah. Most of my peers had someone that was in the county jail. To this day, have someone that is incarcerated. I know you both said that you left the Central Valley for college. What was the moment or the the catalyst for you deciding to come back to the Central Valley to organize here? Yeah. I've always been a shit talker, but <laughs> <laughs> 
let me start there. I, um, you know, I was in Berkeley, and the Berkeley bubble is real. Like, I got there. I was. I joined this super dope student group, and you know, it was like Chicana with an X, Chicana Indígena, La Cultura Cura. We organized in Oakland and Richmond, and like, we're so cool, right? Um, and I would call people out all the time about them staying in the Bay to, to like, um, just organize in the Bay Area when they were like from LA or they were from other parts of the state. And I'd be like, why don't you go back home? I would even like post statuses about it, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it be more meaningful? <laughs> Wouldn't it be more meaningful if you were organizing back home? But there I was planning to stay in the Bay Area after college. Um, and it, it was uh, spring break that I came back to, to Atwater. Um, and I told my parents, like, oh, yeah, I have my full-time job lined up. Like, I'm going to be working for a youth program. Like, I have my whole little life there. Um, and it was a friend of mine who was like, why don't you move back? Mm. Like, don't they have a lot of groups already? Like, why aren't you going to move back? Um, and that question just stayed in my mind when I went back to, to college and I was like, fuck, I'm over here calling out all these LA folks for staying in the Bay, but I'm, I'm here doing the same as if the Central Valley isn't a community, as if the Central Valley is not part of the state, mm-hmm. as if I shouldn't, you know, walk my talk. Um, so I, I decided to move back immediately. Um, and I, you know, it's been the best decision that I have ever made. So actually, Chrissy <laughs> called me out. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't aware I didn't speak, you know, without... <laughs> so, my, it wasn't necessarily a moment, but I think my experience at Harvard, right, like studying social justice, social policies, and actually I did come back for a week, and Chrissy was a panelist on this, like, um, tour that I had organized for my classmates at Harvard, and Chrissy actually told me, like, oh, like... Because I, I stayed working in Oakland after Berkeley. And she was like, yeah, people always, like, go away and they work in Oakland, but they never come back. <laughs> like, okay, okay, I hear you, I hear you. Um, but I think for me, it was just, I think, one, I know if I didn't come back, I'm not sure if I ever would. I think the, the tracks to go to, like, from Harvard or, like, D.C. or New York, essentially, right? Like, when I told the administration, um, the career services, they they're um, like, I'm going back to Fresno. And they're like, we don't know anybody there. We can't help you. But we'll look at your LinkedIn. And I was like, okay, great. Um, so, you know, it, for me, I knew if I didn't come back, and I wouldn't. And I felt like I was at a point. I know I was telling people to, like, go and get resources and network, right? Because I think at that point in my life, I tried to come back after Berkeley. Couldn't. I didn't know anybody. I didn't. I was looking for a nonprofit job on Craigslist that were, like, be a foster parent. <laughs> <laughs> I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't find anything. So by the time I finished Harvard, I was like, oh, I know how to network. I know how to reach out to funders. I have, like, you know, unfortunately, people value school names or whatever. And so that, I think, helped me build a, a path, right, that I couldn't do before. before we started recording, we were talking about um, the Central Valley Freedom Summer 
and our conferences that are coming up. Um, and I know you also have been doing, putting in work on your summer academies. I've been checking in on y'all, make sure um, you're staying hydrated and all that. But can you tell me a little bit more about those two projects that you're doing this summer? For sure. Um, our Each One Teach One Summer Academy, it's um, something that was really big for Alicia and I was creating uh, safe spaces for young folks to really learn from each other's experiences. Um, so in, in Sanger and in Merced, we're gathering young folks that are all high school age, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, um, to learn about um, this community. The first week, it's all about identity. So we broke it down on like, how do you reflect on where you come from, where your ancestors, your family comes from? Um, how do you show up in, in this community and feel proud of who you are? How can you be your full, authentic self? at school, at 99 Roots, and in Atwater or in Sanger. Um, we also talked a lot about different issues in the community. How do we organize our hood, right? How do we build power and bring other young people in this community to unite? Um, our third week was all about winning. Not only are we talking about our own experiences, our own identities, and um, learning about community issues, we're actually gonna win because we're gonna put work in. We're gonna organize our, our high schools. Um, these young people that are going through our summer academies are our core youth. These are young folks that we're really investing a lot of time in. Um, they're really committed to going back to their high schools um, this fall and continuing. And some of them are even going to be, begin brand new clubs at their high schools where they're going to invite other students. Um, they're going to be developing agendas. They're going to be the ones doing outreach and becoming the youth organizers uh, for their, their schools. Yeah, and I think related to that is the Central Valley Freedom Summer um, project that we've been building with Dr. Veronica Tariquez, um and Roxana and a couple of other folks out of UC Santa Cruz. Um, where we're really supporting young people who are from the Central Valley who left to go to um, UC Merced or UC Santa Cruz. They get a whole coursework on um, organizing in the Central Valley and then they actually go back and do voter registration for their spring break and then also um, are placed with several organizations in the summer where they do voter reg and support local orgs on organizing. And all of this is premised on, on this idea I don't really like the term, but people call it like the brain drain, right? Um, that folks who are really talented leave our communities and they don't come back. And I think for me, all of this, each one teach one, the Freedom Summer, is premised on building things and opportunities that I wish existed for me when I was a young person, right? Or my family. Um, because I think far too often young people do leave and they think nothing's here for them, right? And and how do we um, begin to change that narrative that one, you need to leave to find opportunities, right? And actually create opportunities here for folks. And then two, support people who want to come back and have something to contribute to their community. Yeah. I think like growing up here, I felt like the only way that I could exist and, and survive was by assimilating to whiteness by assimilating to speaking English, by assimilating to dressing a certain way, which wasn't who I was. Um, so I, I, I'm really excited about what we're building and, and who we're collaborating with 
because it's all about creating spaces where young folks can be bold and they can know that another Central Valley is possible, right? Like us, we can have a Central Valley where we're all part of different communities and that's dope. We can have a Central Valley where we don't have to assimilate. We can actually be bold and say like, I'm gonna be my full self. I'm gonna be brown and proud. I'm gonna be queer and proud and out loud about it. I'm wondering about the decision to call it Freedom Summer. The Freedom Summer that I'm familiar with is the 1964 Freedom Summer, where Black folks went back to the South to register other Black people to vote. I was wondering if this was inspired by that movement in 1964. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, for us in the Central Valley and other parts of the state as well, um, I mean, voter register is not the sexiest thing, right? And I feel like I wasn't even convinced. I wasn't convinced. I wasn't convinced that like folks would pick it up and be excited about it, right? And I think, um, but it's one of those things where like people have died to do voter register. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think recognizing that, especially you know, here we have you know not always cooperative um, voter registrars, and um, you know parts of our communities where we're not welcomed and voter reg is, you know, not always an acceptable thing on high schools or college campuses because people think we have an agenda, right? Even if it's nonpartisan and it's like, I think for us, voter reg has to be a part of the strategy because in some of these communities, we could completely change the electorate. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, one of, in one of the, I think Avenal actually, they registered more folks young people have pre-registered more folks than actually voted in the last primary, right? And that's, in some of these communities, if you, you know, electeds are winning by a hundred votes. So I was going to say, our fellow is from Avenal, and she's been doing research, and their school board president won by nine votes. Wow. And so people don't even, like, campaign. They just, they get into these seats of power because they figure no one's paying attention. Right. Yeah, and I think if you couple that with all these young people who have the energy to do something different in their community and start, I don't know, getting actually campaign skills around mm-hmm. canvassing, phone banking, organizing, the natural progression, and for some of them, it's going to be leadership, right? Leadership roles are elected leadership specifically. So you have, you begin to actually change the electorate and build the leadership that you need to actually um, implement some of the policies and systems change that we need for our communities. Yeah. And I've worked with you both a little bit on some of the art and culture pieces, and I can see very clearly the commitment you both have to integrating art and culture into the organizing work. Um, where does that commitment come from? I think for me, it was just... Growing up in Atwater, I didn't have access to seeing any artwork anywhere. You grow up in neighborhoods where there, there is no color when you walk down the street. There is no beautiful mural depicting the history of your people um, at all. So when I moved to the Bay Area, it was like I was mind blown that folks were making uh, stencils that said undocumented and unafraid. I remember seeing murals in La Mision and being like, oh my God, this is so dope. It had never crossed my mind that we could have artwork in a community, 
right? So once I was exposed to that and like screen printing and all of these things, I wanted to, I want to make sure that young folks here know that that can be our, our normal, that can become the status quo, that should be the expectation of any group in the community. We should be use, doing what we're naturally good at. I feel like all cultures naturally utilize are naturally utilize um, healing, naturally utilize um, all these things. It's just that we're not validated in institutions. Um, so I, it, it was huge for me to make sure that we include everything um, in any workshop, in any gathering, um, in our offices, um, and that we also build, like, create access for other young folks in this community to see murals in, when they walk down 12th Street. Uh, when they walk down MLK, or even just like driving down the office, that they have access to seeing um, messages and, and colorful artwork. I think for me, um, artists and cultural workers in the social justice nonprofit spaces, it's through, I feel in organizing spaces. I, I feel like I see it more now, um, but I feel like artists and cultural workers are usually the first to be able to translate what's happening um, in a way that could really resonate with broader communities, right? In a way that's accessible, in a way that like a policy dictate can't, right? Um, and I think as nonprofit workers, we don't work or partner enough with artists and cultural workers. And I think it's, they're our first line, actually. I think when they, you know, I, I think, it, I see it more now, uh, the appreciation, I think it's because of the time we're in, like posters, stickers, like, digital contents, music, and I think it's a reflection of just all of the stuff that's happening around us, and I think artists and cultural workers really help it channel and process um, what's happening in a way that, like, policy or workshop or on, like, policy stuff can't necessarily do. Yeah. And Alicia, you're one of the co-founders of the artist collective Fresco, right, um, which is based here in the Central Valley. How has the Artist Collective helped inform your work here at 99 Moves? Yeah, I think that was one of the first projects that I've worked on, right? And I think being connected to artists, DJs, digital designers, paper artists, like, and creating a space uh, very similar to this one, very bright, um, full of art and accessible, you know, want, really wanted to create, um, a, you know, community space. And I think that to me informed how we should be working with artists and cultural workers. And now I have those relationships and, and we pull them into projects and we work together closely on the organizing side, which you know I think has really strengthened our work. And that's why you see like screen printing all the time or murals or banner making because they really helped inform my worldview around approaching these issues from an artist cultural strategy viewpoint. So in our summer academy, for example, um, we ensure that most workshops that we do have some kind of art or cultural component, whether it's talking about our histories and cultures, whether it's actually making different forms of art, um, if we make banners, incorporating that as like an art, art you know, approach, um, posters, screen printing, um, all of that. I really, really, I have an idea that I really want to do because um, we have increased, we have Punjabi communities and there's sometimes a lot of hate crimes. 
that happened and so wanting to do like a cultural food exchange right where we could talk about our different communities and and share food um or the syrian community that's being um placed in in fresno right um how do we uh partner and i think for me um it's ensuring that it's just a part of everything that we do also like that's when people come. If I'm like, oh, I think I want to do, like, you know. One thing I'll add, too, is um, creating pathways for artists and cultural workers in our work to build their leadership and to partner closely with organizers, right? Yeah. Whether it's digital content, muralists, um, paper artists. Like, how do we um, partner closely and build those? Because I think it's different if you have young people who are organizers, like, at heart, and like doing the art piece, but I can tell the difference when I meet young people who are artists and cultural workers and they like lead with that as their organizing strategy, right? And so how do we build those young people up, especially when we know those spaces and avenues are absent here? Yeah, and I think that's a good point. It, sometimes it seems like we focus a lot on organizers and how to integrate art and culture into the work that organizers are doing, but not really realizing that artists also have political inclinations and like, are looking for a space for them to use art to, to build a movement or use art to help support the movement that already exists. So I think it's important for us to be focusing on both groups. Yeah, I think that incorporating like the arts has created a lot of like opportunities for us to engage the masses of, of youth who are hungry to find those spaces. They want to learn about screen printing. They want to be able to create banners, um, even canvassing. Like, how do you make canvassing even funner than what it already is? By having youth, can, uh, you know, go door knocking to ask folks, what do you want to see on this community mural? Um, what is an issue that you would change in this community, right? Um, and then actually have them build their own relationships with our local artists that are going to walk them through the process of developing that image that is then going to stay in that community. There's still this misconception that youth, in particular youth of colour, are apathetic to politics and don't want to vote. What do you both say to that? I mean, it's not true. I think, like I said, I was nervous. I was like, oh, how are we going to get them to do, like, 2,000 voter reg, pre-regs, right? It made sense. They got it, and they were excited about it. And they were, like, <laughs> wearing the little pins, like, I'm going to go register 30 today. No, nah, I'm going to register 40. Like, it makes sense to them. I think far too often, at least what I feel like I see, is that, you know, there's more spaces that we're in that are, like, don't believe that we should create space for young people to step into this role and that's what it is because once we even just create a tiny little crack for them to step into that it just was yes. overflowing right so for me it's more about how do we as adult allies create the spaces for them to step into their power um instead of sending out and reinforcing these messages i don't know i guess to keep our own power i don't, I don't know why yeah they do that I feel like I wasn't ready for all the ideas that you've had about, like, maybe it's because to me it was like, oh, I don't know if youth are going to want to do, like, voter rage, like, is that fun? They got it right away. They're like, oh, only 50? I had someone <laughs> tell me that, oh, only 50? Are you sure? Only 50? And I was like, okay, you're right. You know what? 200 then. And they did it by themselves. They recruited friends. They loved, you know, the swag, showing up and being like, we're building power, we get it. 
we know that this is important and that it matters for our families. Uh, so as part of like the Freedom Summer and like the Summer Academies and all the dope stuff you're doing this summer, um, there's, you know, and I'm on my Instagram, like, what did they do today? <laughs> like, um, but there's a strong focus on like identity and healing and culture. And we've talked about this, this whole interview, but like, why did you decide to focus on those things? Um, and like, what's it like working with the youth this summer? It looks like fun. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there's this saying that I, I really love and it says like, in order to know where you are going, you must know where you have come from. And for me, it was huge for young folks to learn about the history of people of color, to learn about the history of queer uh, people of color, to learn about each other's like identities and to even reflect on their own um, because that's the only way that young folks are gonna feel comfortable organizing. That's the only way that we step into our power. Yeah, I think similarly I mentioned it earlier, for me it's about thinking about the spaces and the opportunities that I wish had existed for myself and my family and my loved ones, right? And, and I think, you know, when you think about the trauma that young people are going through, I think in organizing it is something that even I still am learning the process to this day, right? But if we could build it, it practices around self-care and healing spaces and earlier, um, maybe they won't even go through the same stuff around burnout, which is a huge issue here, right? Um, and so really the healing piece is critical to whatever we do in our sustainability and thinking about just addressing the extensive environmental family, institutional trauma that these young people are going through. And then the culture, like I said, we have to lead with culture, with young people. If you don't have that, I mean, I feel like there's, it's just limiting in scale and scope because once you lead with that, I just, I, you feel, it feels different, it feels authentic, it feels popping, it feels like people want to be a part of a movement, right? Um, so that made sense. And the organizing, we want to win. We want to win. We want to win elections. We want to win policies that make our communities better. Um, so this is because y'all have so much wisdom. If there's like one piece of advice that you could give to other organizers who are maybe like, "Dang, I need to be using cultural strategy um, in my work," what would be that piece of advice? Fuck it, thug life. Just do it. Do it, right? Do it. Don't wait for the resources to come. Like, you, if you have those relationships, do it. Create what you feel you need. Um, I think for a long time, organizing in the Valley is not easy. Um, and I found myself in this really negative place of, like, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to be creative with what I do because folks aren't even going to appreciate it. Why am I doing it? Right? And... It's so liberating and it's helping me stay in this work by being like, I'm just gonna do it. If, if you have that hunger to do it, do it. Don't wait for permission. Um, don't wait to get the funding for it. Like, just do it. Um, if, if you feel like it's needed, if you feel like you need to lead with culture and art, don't limit yourself to the organizing model that your organization might have. Just create your own um, model. Do what do what you feel is right. Go for it. This is 
an election year, right? We had the primary in June, and we're going back into it for November. Can you talk a little bit about the political climate here in the Valley? So the folks know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of our local um, leadership, whether it's the sheriff, right, um, or just local city or county supervisors, is aligned with a racist federal administration. And I think um, doing elections where it can be a little bit scary, right, um, in that way, but also knowing that it's so incredibly critical to um, what we need to do to actually change our community. And I think, you know, thinking, and I see this happen, I feel like I've seen this happen already twice, where it's like during an election year, especially when there's, um, really strong congressional leadership that's coming from the Central Valley that's conservative, people start to be like, oh, what's happening? We need to flip the house. We need to just dump money into these districts that are in the Central Valley, but they're not investing in the year-round organizing that we need. And certainly not young people, which we're a younger region, mostly youth of color. We have to figure that out to be able to win here, right? And so I feel like the, every election year, there's like all this attention on the Central Valley, but it never really translates into the meaningful, long-term, sustainable organizing investments that we need year-round in these small communities. Because people are always like, oh, why do you organize in these small communities? I'm like, one of the districts you're trying to you know, make an impact in is all of these little small communities that most folks are you know, unincorporated or, or not. Um, being targeted for organizing work. So I think for me, it's just really critical that we think about sustainability and the leadership that we're building throughout our campaign management um, programs and, and um, our different campaigns because that's who's actually going to be able to, to, to do, do the work sustainably. Yeah, you know, we live in communities and towns and counties and districts where elected officials believe that California's English only, and that our schools should only have all resources, all documents in English. We, we live in communities where elected officials, and not just elected officials, also uh, department managers or directors um, are uncomfortable with talking about the impact that policies have on communities of color. Um, so when we when we talk about organizing um, and engaging voters, it's it's a huge need. These you know these folks are representing and making decisions for our youth in the schools, in our neighborhoods. Um, I was once that Chicana that was too cool to vote, and was like, Nah, I'm too down. I'm not gonna be part of that system that was created by white folks that is doing, keeping us out and is, is serving what it was created uh, to do. Um, but as soon as I moved back and started organizing and started you know, realizing that in my hometown, city council is all white, even though the community is predominantly brown um, and that they were still talking about, hey, we need to uh, deport immigrants and, and we need to collaborate with ICE if we stop an undocumented man for not having a light. Um, let's bring ICE and have them deported. That was like reality to me. And I was like, damn, I need to step up my game and I need to learn about canvassing. I need to learn about um, engaging voters because here, it's it, more so than any other part of the state. And I'm going to say it here, if you can move voters 
and, and register voters, uh, it's going to have the biggest impact than any other part of the state because politicians are getting elected by 3,000 votes. Our mayors are elected by 3,000 votes in some communities. And these mayors are then saying that they're anti-sanctuary, that they're anti-LGBT. Um, so if we are able to create a young people of color voting block, um, which our youth have done, they've, they've talked to more than 4,000 voters of color that will come out and cast a ballot, imagine how much more we can win. Homegrown Power, California's grassroots cultural organizers, is a production of Power California, a 501c3 organization. Power California harnesses the energy of young voters of color and their families to create a state that is equitable, inclusive, and just for everyone who calls California home. Opinions expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position of Power California. To learn more about us and support our work, check out our website at www.powercalifornia.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PowerCA Now. Thank you.